we're coming in hot in 2024. <laughs> um, yeah, it needs to be done. I want to start the new year by telling everyone you can't trust a single thing you see or hear anymore. Welcome to the Marketing AI Show, the podcast that helps your business grow smarter by making artificial intelligence approachable and actionable. You'll hear from top authors, entrepreneurs, researchers, and executives as they share case studies, strategies, and technologies that have the power to transform your business and your career. My name is Paul Reitzer. I'm the founder of Marketing AI Institute, and I'm your host. Welcome to episode 78 of the Marketing AI Show. I'm your host, Paul Reitzer, along with my co-host, Mike Kaput. We are back for the first edition of 2024. I feel like I was going to say it's been a month since we did this together, but I think it literally <laughs> has been a month since we did this together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was hard. Like for me, the first, so I think the last one we did was probably around the first week of of December. And then Kathy and I did that special, like 15 questions. Everyone's asking about AI episode in the middle of December, that week between like the one we did and the one Kathy and I did, there was so much happening where I was like, oh man, we should really, maybe we should do an episode. And I was like, no, we are taking, <laughs> we are taking a break. We're not episodes. So, uh, we, we did, you know, Mike and I, I, I think both kind of got away a little bit. Um, Mike kept the newsletter going. So if you're a subscriber to the newsletter, I know we were still sending every Tuesday, we did send out the newsletter with some links. There was definitely some stuff happening uh, in December, but I think luckily for all of us, not a ton of like breaking AI news in December, especially the last two weeks of December. Um, so it, it worked out well. I, I was able to kind of step back and, you know, clear my mind a little bit. Uh, I listened to a lot of podcasts. I read a lot of stuff about AI, but I, I tried to not share much and, and do much. And I actually, the first time I can remember in my entrepreneurial life, which goes back to 2005, I, I literally didn't work for like seven days stretch. It was phenomenal. I just hung out with my family. And, and, uh, so yeah, so I hope everybody had a great, uh, holiday season and to the year and, and that the new year's off to a great start for you. Um, we owe a lot of interesting topics today. It's not like breaking news topics, but a, like the, there's four. We actually had almost have like a fourth main topic today, basically, because it was just like some really interesting things to get into. So we're going to get into all of that. Um, first, this episode is brought to us by BrandOps. Many marketers use ChatGPT to create marketing content, but that's just the beginning. When we sat down with the BrandOps team. We were impressed with their complete views of brand marketing performance across channels. Now you can bring BrandOps data into ChatGPT to answer your toughest marketing questions. Use BrandOps data to drive unique AI content based on what works in your industry. Visit brandops.io slash marketing AI show to learn more and see BrandOps in action. So thanks to BrandOps for uh, sponsoring the podcast. And then we also have the AI for Writers Summit coming up. So this was, we did the inaugural AI for Writers Summit at Marketing Institute in uh, was it March of 2023, Mike? It was a year mm -hmm. ago, March. And so we are back with the second edition of the AI for Writers Summit. This is going to be Wednesday, March 6th. It's a virtual event from noon to four Eastern time. Um, there was, we, our goal in 2023 for the, for the inaugural was a thousand uh, registrations. It's free, by the way. Um, there's, a, there's a paid option to get the on-demand, but the, the event itself is actually free to attend. We had over 4,000 writers, editors, and content marketers there last year. So um, really amazing turnout. And I think it was just 
you know, when we created that event, we were in that moment where chat GPT was really emerging. It was right before GPT-4 came out. I, I think GPT-4 came out like two weeks after the Writer's Summit last year, if I remember correctly. Maybe it was right before it. Um, but basically, a lot of writers were starting to wonder what is going on? What is the impact of these, of these tools on our jobs, on our careers? Um, and that was what we kind of set out to try and not necessarily answer, but just have open discussions about. Like, help writers and editors and content marketers and brand leaders try and understand the state of what is going on with AI, the impact it's going to have on copywriting and, and creativity moving forward. And that's what we're going to try and tackle again this year is really look at the state of it, um, talk about some of the key technologies in the generative AI space, get into how it's impacting, uh, you know, not only brand teams, but freelancers and journalists, uh, and really try and advance the conversation in the community around this stuff. So check out AIWritersSummit.com. Again, it's free. Uh, there's a free ticket option. Um, and then I think there's like a $99 maybe on-demand option if you want to get it on-demand. So AIWritersSummit.com, March 6th, uh, Wednesday, March 6th, 12 to 4 Eastern time. Mike and I will both be presenting at, at that summit. All right, Mike, let's get into the main topics. All right, Paul. So first up, the New York Times has sued OpenAI and Microsoft for copyright infringement. And this is kicking off now what could be a landmark legal battle over how AI systems like ChatGPT are being trained. In this lawsuit, the Times alleges that both OpenAI and Microsoft's AI tools illegally trained on millions of copyrighted articles and materials from the New York Times website specifically. According to the text of the lawsuit, quote, through Microsoft's Bing Chat, recently rebranded as Copilot, and OpenAI's ChatGPT, defendants, i.e. OpenAI and Microsoft, seek to free ride on the Times's massive investment in its journalism by using it to build substitutive products without permission or payment. What's more, the Times claims that it was particularly targeted by OpenAI and Microsoft. So this lawsuit says that while the companies copied from many sources, they gave Times content particular emphasis when they were building their LLMs. The lawsuit does not come yet with a price tag for these damages, but it does say that the companies should be held responsible for, quote, billions in damages. It also calls for OpenAI and Microsoft to destroy any models and training data that use copyrighted material from the New York Times. So, Paul, there's a lot to unpack here. First up, in a recent tweet, Walter Isaacson, who is the famous author of the Steve Jobs and Elon Musk biographies, he said that lawsuits like this one from the Times, quote, will be the most important cases for journalism and publishing in our lifetime. He seems to think it's a big deal. How big a deal do you think this is? I, I think this one is a really big deal. One, it's the New York Times. Um, two, the, the the case appears to be very well made. I mean, I didn't read the whole 300 plus um, page filing, but the analysis of it indicates it's a it's a really big deal. Um, I think it's helpful to take a, a slight step back and understand like why this is happening and what's at stake. So. You kind of alluded to it a little bit here, but again, just for like foundational understanding purposes, these models are trained on data. So when we go and use ChatGPT or Grok or 
Claude or Pi or whatever your chosen large language model and chatbot is, it is trained on data. Um, the way it's able to output, whether it's an email or a newsletter or an ad or an image, is that it, it, it has this data that it learns from. Now, the higher quality the data, the better the model. So if you're going to train a model that is able to write, you want it to learn from the best content available. So if you take GPT-4, which is still the most powerful and capable model in the world, you want the best examples of writing and the, the greatest depth of knowledge. So you need legitimate sources, not just a bunch of Reddit boards and, and Twitter threads. So in past episodes, this is why we've discussed how Google, um, Meta to some degree, Amazon, they may have advantages given the fact that they have their own proprietary data and platforms. So again, if you're Google, you have YouTube as an example. You have way more than that, but YouTube is, is one key example. Um, XAI slash Grok has Twitter data. If they can get rid of the noise and misinformation, that can be really valuable. But if you're OpenAI, Anthropic, Cohere, Inflection, and others, you don't have your own data. You are a language model company. You're building models on other people's data. The argument here is they may not have had the permission or the right, well, they definitely have the permission. They may not have had the legal rights to train on other people's data. So there is uncertainty around whether or not training the model is fair use. Um, but these AI companies certainly knew going in that it was a gray area that was likely going to be challenged legally. We, we know that to be a fact that there's internal discussions around questions of, are we even allowed to do this? But Finding an answer to that is going to take a really long time. This isn't like this case is going to be settled in three months and OpenAI is going to have to destroy GPT-4 because it was trained on New York Times data and you can't extract that specific data set. That's not what's happening. going to happen here. This is going to take a long time. The other thing I think we need to consider in all of this is the media companies whose content is used to train these models struggle. Like they rely on traffic in many cases from search engines to support their ad revenue models. That traffic and those business models are at risk as consumer behavior evolves and maybe they don't get as much traffic from these search engines. So there's a lot of things because you know the consumer, you and I, we may start going directly to the chatbots or to AI agents to find the information we need. We might not go search anymore and therefore we may not land on the New York Times and they might not be able to sell the ads. So there's a lot of things at play here. Um, when we get though into the, the strength of the legal case, as you called out, like we're not the attorneys here. We're, we're not gonna be the ones that are gonna say this is legit legal case and they've got mm -hmm. great grounds. But what you and I do is we, we find the people and follow the people who are authorities on these topics, who have way more information and knowledge on this. So I know you and I both read the Cecilia Zanitti, I, Zanitti, I think is how you say her name. Um, She's an IP and AI lawyer and formal general counsel at Replit, one of the AI companies that you and I both love. Mm. Um, and so she had a great thread on Twitter that we'll, uh, we'll link to, and I'll just call it a couple of the things she highlighted. So she said, first, the complaint clearly lays out the claim of copyright infringement, highlighting the access and substantial similarity between New York Times articles and chat GPT outputs. Key fact, this is again, quoting from her. New York Times is the single biggest proprietary data set in common crawl, which is used to train GPT. Now, in her thread, she has a screenshot from the legal filing 
that shows the common crawl. So here's what it says. And, and again, this is coming right from the OpenAI New York Times filing. The most highly weighted data set in GPT-3, GPT-3 common crawl is a quote, copy of the internet made available by a 501c3 organization run by wealthy venture capital investors. The domain www.newyorktimes.com is the most highly represented proprietary source and the third overall behind Wikipedia and a database of US patent documents represented in the English language subset of a 2009 snapshot of Common Crawl accounting for 100 million tokens. What, what that's saying is when these models are trained, most of them, I think, use this Common Crawl data set. So it's not like uh, OpenAI goes directly to New York Times and gets all of their data and scrapes it. I don't, I don't think at least that's how it occurs. They use the Common Crawl data set, which is made up of New York Times data, but not only New York Times data. The number four on this list is the LA Times. Number five is the Guardian. Number seven is Forbes. Eight, Huffington Post. Uh, Eleven, Washington Post. Like you start going down this list, and you realize we're just talking about the tip of the iceberg here. Because if the New York Times has a case, then so does the Washington Post and Forbes and Huffington Post. Like all of them have the same exact potential issues. Um, so that's a really big problem. Like if this opens up the floodgates for these lawsuits, New York Times isn't the only one that's in common crawl that's being used to do this. Mm. The second point she makes is um, the visual evidence of copying in the complaint is stark. Uh, and then she shows an example where it literally gave a verbatim output of like four or 500 words. And, and so they kind of prompted it to where it gave this plagiarized output. This is straight up plagiarism. Like there's not even, this isn't even a debate. Um, so it's there in, in the reports, and it's going to be very hard to dispute that. Um, her take was OpenAI can't really defend this practice without some heavy changes to the instructions and a whole lot of litigating about how the tech works. It will be smarter to settle than fight. Uh, her fourth point, failed negotiations suggest damages for New York Times. OpenAI is already licensed from other media outlets like Politico. Um, and then she says the refusal to strike a deal may prove costly especially as open AI profits grow and more and more examples happen. My hi spicy hypothesis, she goes on to say, open AI thought they could get it out of it for seven or eight figures. New York Times is looking for more and an ongoing loyalty. So the overall take here is I, I, licensing deals are going to be way easier than litigation. So, you know, I think that's going to be a, a key thing. Um, the other context I'll add real quick is, Andrew Ng, who, you know, you and I both follow, um, one of the leading AI people in the world right now and founder of Coursera and Google brain team and all those things. Um, so he had a tweet that we'll again, put in there and then a related blog post where he said, after reading the New York times lawsuit against OpenAI and Microsoft, I find my sympathies more with OpenAI and Microsoft than with New York times. So this is kind of like a counterpoint, sort of interesting. He said specifically, number one, claims, among other things, that OpenAI and Microsoft used millions of copyrighted New York Times article to train their models. Um, he says, I understand why media companies don't like people training on their documents, but believe that just as humans are allowed to read documents on the open internet, learn from them, and synthesize brand new ideas, AI should be allowed to do so too. I would like to see training on the public internet covered under fair use. Society will be better off this way. Though, whether it actually is will ultimately be up to legislators and courts. And then I'll kind of finish my thoughts here, Mike, and I'd love to get your, your, your opinion here. Um, I had po 
reposted that Andrew Ung article on Twitter and someone asked a question about like training versus learning and, and whether or not it should be illegal to do this. And so my, my response was, and I'll just kind of read this to it's simpler. The legal arguments between training and learning will be intriguing. I could definitely see a path forward in which the courts allow the training learning because the AI companies succeed at convincing the judge or judges it's not really different from humans. But the companies building the models and potentially the end users, you and I and everyone listening to this, are still liable for copyright infringement and plagiarism on the outputs, also like humans. But as I said earlier, it will be years before this is all settled. And my best guess is the AI companies end up paying a few billion to settle without admitting wrongdoing to make these lawsuits go away. And then they train all future models, GPT-5 and beyond, or you know whatever Bard's built on, Gemini. They'll train all these future models on proprietary, licensed, and synthetic data. They'll just get around this, but we're just not going to train on stuff that we're stealing from people anymore. So I still think it's possible that the leading AI companies, oh, this is kind of like a, a, a bigger idea. I think we talked about this on a prior podcast. My one theory is that it's possible these AI companies buy or build their own media companies to power future models. Then they control the source data and they get to influence the narrative and public in the process. So if you think about like Bezos owns the Washington Post, um, uh, Benioff owns Time Magazine, right? So he's got all the archives for Time Magazine, like if mm -hmm. Salesforce wants to train to. So it's already actually kind of started happening. And now you have like Elon Musk's owns Twitter. So you're seeing it happen. And I almost wonder if that isn't the play because OpenAI and others can pay millions or billions in licensing fees and basically rent the data, or they can just buy the media outlets for less and scrap a dying advertising model that's barely sustaining journalism as is. Like journalism mm. is dying. You can't, you can't fund local journalism through ad models. And so in this great ironic twist, there's a chance AI actually saves journalism rather than steals from it. Um, but then we deal with the fact that these AI companies now not only determine like knowledge, but they get to control what is truth. Like, mm. It's such a fascinating topic. So going back to your original question, is this a big deal? It's a huge deal, I think, because it, it's not just one case. This has ripple effects throughout you know, the impact on search, the impact on journalism, the impact on how the models are built. Um, uh, it's it's going to be so crazy to watch how this all plays out. I don't. What are your? Th I mean, do you do, do you have a feeling one way or the other? Like, is, is it going to be illegal? Like, what are they going to do? I don't know. Yeah, I don't. You know, I'm still in kind of my first draft of thinking about the topic, but I largely agree with you that I don't see a future where realistically the demands in the New York Times' lawsuit or anyone others to shut these models down or destroy training data actually happens. I mean, how many times has that ever happened and do we anticipate it to happen? I certainly could be wrong, but I think that kind of leads my line of inquiry to kind of what comes next. And that's kind of where I wanted to, you know, wrap up this discussion and double click a little more on the licensing side of this, because we talked a little bit about the Times, you know, said in its lawsuit, it tried to negotiate some type of content licensing with OpenAI. That fell through. 
we've seen some other reports that we'll link in the show notes that OpenAI has actually offered some media firms like one to $5 million annually to license their content, which seems really, really low to me. Is there any possible future here where licensing actually works? Because I'm more and more in your camp where I think, why not just buy the, the information, the content itself in the yeah, I mean, I think the outlet? In the near term, it could, but I, I just feel like whoever owns the data has the power in the future. And I can't see the AI companies giving up that power. So like I, I could see them playing nice until they don't need to anymore. Um, like we know Google has licensing deals. We know Apple's been in negotiations. You know, rumor is that they're going to do something significant by Q3 of this year with Surrey and, mm. you know, definitely doing something with their own language models already. They're building them. Um, so they're also trying to license data. They have their whole news platform. Like if you're an Apple news reader, like they have access to all that and, and they could extend licensing deals with those companies. But what I had heard, uh, and I'll try and see if I can find the article to put in the show notes was that Apple doesn't just want licensing. Like they want future rights to this stuff to build other content on top of, or build other models on top of. And it, it, so I think that the licensing is going to get complicated, but the reality is the media companies need the AI companies probably more than the AI companies need the media companies. And so right now the media companies have the leverage because there's a pretty good chance that the AI companies probably weren't allowed to do what they did. So they may have to pay you know some fines for that. Um, but moving forward, there's belief they can use synthetic data. Like, okay, you're not going to play ball with New York Times. We'll go do a deal with the Washington Post. Like, there's other ways to get the data and build these models. Um, and so I, I just feel like right now, again, media companies probably have some leverage in this because they're, they need this data to do this, but you know, fast forward one, two, three years down the road. And I think that leverage will probably shift to the AI companies, whether it's because they just buy the media companies or they find other ways to get proprietary or synthetic data to train on, or they just do deals with other partners and move on from them. So. I don't know. It's going to be really fascinating to watch. Yeah. And one final note here, which could be a whole topic for a future podcast. It occurs to me that there might be an interesting discussion moving forward around sort of what we might call niche media properties, like in different verticals. I mean, eventually you could see some interest from model companies in getting more specialized content around different areas. If that ends up being valuable to training versions of their models or fine tuning existing ones. Yeah. And that's, you know, do you see a fracturing where there isn't like a general model where you go in and just assume ChatGPT is going to tell me anything or right. like, you know, for example, I mean, who could build a better product model than Amazon? Like they've mm. all those, you know, millions or hundreds of millions of products and they know everything about them. It's all sitting in databases. So, you know, if I wanted to interact with any kind of find a product for anything, any lifestyle, any need, um, you would think that's something Amazon could build better than anybody. And, and so is that, you know, are there travel agent bots and like, do you actually interact with individual specialized bots? But I know like the, the plan for like these large models would be to, in essence, have AI agents that are specialized in all these areas. And so I could still go to chat GPT and I'm looking for a product, but it, it's actually pulling the AI agent that's trained on product data. Mm. And that's the one that's actually feeding the outputs back to me. So I, you know, I think at the end of the day, the, the big models probably still win. We want to go to one place like a Google versus 15 yeah. places to find our specialized data. 
All right. Our second big topic for this week. If you if I'm ready for this one, (laughs) buckle up, everybody (laughs) refill your coffee. Or if you're listening to this at night, maybe a stiff drink or something. But if you use X, formerly Twitter, and you follow certain technology leaders there, you may have noticed that some of them share a weird kind of short series of letters that are listed in their bios. So you'll regularly see these letters E forward slash ACC in the profile title of users, and it often follows their name. So, you know, Paul Ratzer, parentheses, E forward slash ACC. That's not your profile, but- And I do not have that in my profile. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it would look like. Um, So you'll see this more and more, and it actually stands for a term called, quote, effective accelerationism. Now, this is a philosophy, and maybe you might even call it a movement that or a more or a cult, we'll get to that part for sure, <laughs> that more and more influential people in AI and technology and Silicon Valley specifically have started to subscribe to. Now, this movement broadly believes that the best thing for humanity is to advance artificial intelligence as quickly as possible. And the movement serves as kind of a counterweight to all these voices in AI that believe more regulations, laws, guardrails around AI are needed to actually use the technology safely. So we're seeing a lot of major players in Silicon Valley and in AI at large, including people like the famous venture capitalist Mark Andreessen, identify as EONC, is how we're going to refer to it throughout the rest of this segment, E forward slash ACC, EAC. So it's important to really understand a bit about this. It may seem a little weird at first, but it really, really is integral, we think, to getting inside the head of some of the people that are defining AI in 2024 and beyond. So Paul, at first glance, this is kind of some weird sci-fi techno cult sounding type thing that probably your average person is not going to think super relevant to that, but it actually has some really practical implications, I think, for everyone trying to understand and adopt AI. So could you maybe unpack this for us and why? tell us kind of why it matters? Yeah. So as Mike said, th- this one is, um, it definitely has a little sci-fi out there feel, but it is very important because there are very influential people in technology who believe this all to be true. Uh, So I will say we are presenting this as not like there's elements of this. I totally understand. Like I, I, I sympathize with elements of their thinking. Um, I I would, I would not consider myself EAC is is actually like how you pronounce E dash uh, forward slash ACC. I am certainly not EAC. Um, but this is definitely the accelerationist side. This is the technology at all costs movement. So. I've been aware of it for a while. I, I don't know how long I've I, I've kind of uh, generally known, and but more just like seen the EAC symbol on people's Twitter accounts and been kind of annoyed by it. At first, I probably thought it was like a crypto thing, um, and so I just ignored it, like I ignored most crypto stuff um, for a couple of years. But um, so I, I listen though to Lex Friedman. So last week I'm listening to the Lex Friedman podcast, and it's with this guy Guillaume Verdon. Um, and so he tells the story of how he created this movement. So basically, um, the creator of EAC is an alternate persona on Twitter known as 
Jeff Jezos. So Jeff Bezos switched over. Um, so the Twitter handle is actually based Beth Jezos. So there's a few things already where I'm just like, hey, this is not my thing. This is, again, why I haven't really <laughs> dove into this previously. Um, it sounded political and it sounded like all this other stuff. So I was just kind of ignoring it. But once I listened to this podcast, I realized like, oh, that was my bad. Like I, I shouldn't have been uh, not paying closer attention to this. So he creates this alternate persona. This is not known to the world. Um, Beth Jezos was an unknown person. It's kind of like the guy um, who created Bitcoin. Like we still don't know who that guy yeah, is. Yeah, He's just yeah. like a pseudonym, basically. So it's like that. We didn't know who Beth Jezos was. It wasn't a real person in, in our knowledge. Um, so it, the movement itself looks like it originated around summer 2022. So it's about a year and a half old. Uh, the reason he did the interview and, and explained this all is because he was, he called it doxed. I don't, I don't think that's technically what happened. Doxing is like someone's private information or location. Um, he was more technically probably unmasked. Um, Forbes did a, an expose where they basically tried to figure out who Beth Jezos was because he was starting to have influence over Silicon Valley and the future of AI and technology. And so they made the argument that because he was over 50,000 followers on Twitter, it was for public good, basically, that people know who he is. So Forbes uh, contacted his investors in, I, I assume, a kind of uh, November timeframe last year and alerted them that they knew it was Guillaume and that they were going to publish an article uh, stating as much. And so Guillaume uh, begrudgingly did an interview with Forbes that came out December 1st last year and explained this whole movement and said, yes, in fact, it's me. Now, if you listen to the Lex Freeman podcast, he's still pissed that Forbes did this. Like mm -hmm. he, he didn't think that journalists were allowed to do something like this. So he, he wasn't happy about it. Um, but in the, the interview with Friedman and to a degree, the, the Forbes article, he explains now, now, again, Guillaume is a quantum physicist, uh, just a genius guy who spent his early career studying black holes and information theory, like really crazy stuff, um, crazy awesome stuff. He worked on the quantum team at Google, building quantum computers, and he basically left to start a company called Extropic because he believes that there are limitations to the current pursuit of quantum computing, and he's trying to build a thermodynamics-based computer. I, I am not going to get into all of, like, that stuff. Uh, yeah, but don't worry. About it. Stick with us. Listen. Yeah, we're we're gonna get there. <laughs> so he he leaves, starts in extropic, creates this EAC movement, and he explains how they engineered the movement to spread like a virus. So if you're a marketer, like I, my ears kind of perked up. I was like, you did what? Like how how does that work? And they in essence realized that memes uh, are treated favorably by Twitter's algorithms, and that if they built the movement around memes it would spread like a virus online. And that's what they did. So that's how they kind of created this whole thing. So what is EAC? Uh, now we kind of get into the meat of this. And again, bear, bear with us. The, the, it's a little out there, but it's really important. So we went and pulled the original post that they put up about effective accelerationism. As Mike said, that's what EAC means. It does play off of effective altruism, which they hate because they feel it was a bunch of rich people who found ways to funnel money through nonprofits and steal the money, basically. So they're not fans of effective altruism, but they did play off of it to do effective accelerationism. So they state in their initial post, 
The overarching goal for humanity is to preserve the light of consciousness. Um, it gets, it gets more intense. Uh, second technology and market forces as they define as techno capital, which I'll get to in a moment are accelerating in their powers and abilities. So techno capital is a really important term to understand here because they use it all the time. And I had no idea what it meant. So I actually went to Grok. I figured, well, this might be actually a pretty good use case for Grok. So I said, what is techno capital capital in terms of the EAC movement? At first it said it, it couldn't tell me um, that it was just, you know, in development and I go, go search on the internet basically. And I asked it again and then it told me, I, I don't know why that is. So it said, techno capital refers to the economic and social power associated with technology innovation and corporate sectors. It's a term that highlights the importance of technology and the impact on the development of capitalism. Some people believe that techno capital is driving force behind the evolution of society, while others see it as a tool for corporate control and domination. Regardless, it's undeniable that technology. So it's basically technology and capital. Now, I'm going to read you Chad GPT's output as well, because it actually gives like some really good, interesting context. So Chad GPT says, in the context of accelerationism movement, particularly the branch known as EAC, it refers to the concept that blends technology and capitalism. Accelerationism is an intellectual and political movement that holds the process of capitalist technology and social change should be accelerated rather than resisted or controlled. This gets into what Mike was saying. They don't like laws and regulations. They just want accelerated at all costs. In this framework, techno capital is seen as a driving force of societal evolution. It represents the idea that the advancements of technology like AI and quantum computing uh, under the dynamics of capitalism leads to an exponential increase in technology, technological growth and societal transformation. This concept suggests that the infusion of technology and capital creates self-propelling systems that move towards ever greater levels of complexity and integration. Um, so basically, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Then going back to their notes, they say technology market forces, technical capital are accelerating in their powers and abilities. This force cannot be stopped. Techno capital can usher in the next evolution of consciousness, creating unthinkable next generation life forms and silicon based awareness. I'm going to linger there for a moment. Next generation life forms means, by definition, likely not purely human. And silicon based awareness means the chips themselves become aware of themselves, that, that these, the AI becomes aware of itself, basically. These new forms of consciousness, by definition, will make sentience more varied and durable. We want this, they say. Those who are first to usher in and control techno-capital have immense agency over future con consciousness. Humans have this agency right now, and they can affect what happens. And it's basically a set of ideas and practices that seek to maximize the probability of this happening. So my take to kind of summarize this is accelerate AI at all costs, regardless of the implications, the negatives, no regulation of companies building the technology, technological advancements solve everything. They are, they are of the belief that you cannot allow a few AI companies like Meta, Google, OpenAI to capture all the value and control the laws and regulations. What we've talked previously about regulatory capture, that OpenAI and Google are like saying, hey, regulate us. These guys are saying no regulation. Do not allow that because they're just going to control everything. They believe that safe AI comes from market choice. 
So this was the one that I was really listening for when I was listening to this, because I still am unsure about the open source movement for these large language models, because they have no guardrails. Anything can be done with them. Their belief is, and this gets into the techno-capitalist thing, that capitalism decides what wins and what loses. That even if bad actors use LLMs to do bad things, capitalism is the guardrail. That there is no incentive for those companies over time or those individuals over time if no one buys what they're creating. So they believe that capitalism rewards the winners and extinguishes the losers that don't create value and align with societal values and norms. In essence, they let the market decide. Um, and then the last thing is humans are likely not the ultimate form of intelligence. And to them, that's okay. Uh, we should accelerate, even if it means obsoleting ourselves in our current form. And even said at one point, like we owe it to whatever the future of humanity looks like, the trillions of people to come, that if we're not the ultimate life form, we do everything we can to create a more intelligent life form that can make us an implanted and do all this stuff. So again, as we warned you, this is really sci-fi and kind of crazy sounding. But why it matters, going back to what Mike said at the beginning, there are people building AI and running some of these AI companies who believe this stuff. Um, and, and that affects all of us. So we have to understand their beliefs and motivations, the tools that they're building, the computers that they're building in the near term will impact our careers and companies. But the beliefs they hold and their ability to bring those beliefs to life through movements and, as they call them, mind viruses, will impact humanity in, in like the coming decade. This isn't 30 years out stuff. Like this is the stuff that they think is like within reach. So I'll, I'll stop there. I know it's a lot to process. And Mike, maybe we can kind of unpack it a little bit. But again, like it's, we try and sometimes push a little bit in this podcast to like challenge ourselves and others to expand your understanding of what's going on um, because it matters long-term, but in a lot of cases, it matters in the very near-term around the, the decisions you make, the companies and vendors you choose to work with, like understand what these CEOs believe and why they're building the companies they're building. It, again, it's, it's not to write your emails. Like that, mm. that's not why most of these companies exist. So to kind of really quickly summarize these steps, we have this anonymous Twitter X account that's promoting what sound like some crazy views under this EAC moniker. It gets enough attention that eventually journalists start looking into, oh my gosh, what is this random account that all these influential people in Silicon Valley are following? They're able to unmask the account. It turns out to be a Silicon Valley, essentially tech guy who has a very deep physics background. He believes this extreme accelerationist philosophy, which was essentially started by engineering a viral online movement to promote it. And a core of this philosophy is the idea that advancements of technology under capitalism equals growth slash transformation slash where we have to go as a species. And this cannot be stopped. And it may mean that machines end up subsuming humans as the most intelligent life form. Now, that does sound wild. It's like a movie plot, doesn't it? 
<laughs> it's it honestly it's some of the movies <laughs> well, you just summarize that i'm like that's a good trailer for a movie yeah <laughs> yeah so uh, what strikes me is if we took this out of into any other context and i said to you hey seven out of the ten biggest leaders in ai believe in economic growth at all costs or believe in philanthropy over profits, you would pay attention, wouldn't you? You would say, hmm, that's really interesting. That's a, a big majority of people believe this kind of thing that likely motivates their decisions, why they work on things, why they do what they do. So I think that to me is really the key takeaway here is understanding this in the sense that it motivates more people than you might think. We don't know for sure. Thankfully, some of them put it in their bio. So if you search for that, you can find them. But I would be willing to bet a significant portion of AI leaders hold some or all of these views. Do, would you agree with that statement? I, certainly some of them. And I think, you know, even like a Sam Altman, they'll use as an example, like he actually tweeted at Beth Jesus one time, you can't out accelerate me. And yet <laughs> Sam is also the guy fighting for regulation. Elon Musk claims that he started OpenAI because... Um, Larry Page was uh, anti-humans, that he he felt that if AI took over, that, that was inevitable. So he created OpenAI to combat this exact concept. And yet Elon Musk owns Neuralink, which merges human minds with computers. Like, so yeah, it's just, it's fundamental. And what the, the other thing, and maybe we'll kind of like move on from here, because I think this is just a, a lot to process. Um, there are what they call forks off of this. So what you're going to see is other E slash mm. other letters, because what's happening is people are like, yeah, I, I totally actually agree that technology and capitalism will drive this, but I don't, I'm not in with the, the let's replace humans thing. So I'm going to like create a fork or a, a different variation of this movement that believes this. And they actually encourage that. So they're kind of pushing the most extreme beliefs. And then off of that, they encourage these forks where people, you know, kind of find their own comfort level with what they're going to push. And I think that's probably the thing that ends up being the greatest impact is there's going to be all these forks of these other AI leaders who maybe don't want to publicly say, yeah, I'm cool if humans aren't the thing 50 years from now. They're never going to publicly say that, mm. but they may have some varying beliefs, but you're going to start to see the common threads between these, these people. Excellent. So. Uh, I guess I'm not going to apologize for this, but we're coming in hot in 2024. <laughs> um, yeah, it needs to be done. Sorry, folks. But I want to start the new year by telling everyone you can't trust a single thing you see or hear anymore. That's the topic of our third main news item today. And it's a 2024 message from AI expert and Wharton professor Ethan Malik, because Malik recently went viral on X with a post showing a deep fake video that he created of himself that honestly is basically indistinguishable from a real video of him. He starts off with a real video and transitions to a clearly labeled AI deep fake, and it is very hard to tell the difference. In the deep fake version, AI Ethan says things that he has never said in English, then transitions to him saying those things perfectly in Italian and in Hindi. I don't believe he knows either language. And in any case, this is totally AI generated. Now, it's 
this really jaw-dropping example of just how fast deep fakes have progressed and it should make everyone hyper skeptical of everything they see and hear online. That's his takeaway. He says that right up front. And the most surprising part of the experiment was how easy this was to do. Malik says he used just one minute of training data to create this 60 plus second video that is a very, very good deep fake. Um, if you are looking for this thread on X, Malik actually deleted it after it went viral because it turns out people were kind of mistakenly making him the face of this kind of creepy deepfake technology. He was like, no, 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 this is just an experiment. This is not what I do. So he deleted that, but the full videos on YouTube, he breaks it down in his Substack newsletter. So we're linking to both of those. You can check it out for yourself. But first up, Paul, I have to say like, this surprised even me because it surpasses anything I've personally seen to date. And I've actually seen and heard Ethan Malik in person speak at our event and watched him on video multiple times. And honestly, I had a really hard time telling the difference between real and fake here. So I guess my first question for you is how much trouble are we in now with deep fake technology? You know, when, when we published our marketing artificial intelligence book in summer 2022, I think it came out. We had a section in there about deep fakes and how you needed to prepare for them. And from a crisis communication standpoint within, you know, your, your businesses, because we were heading in this direction very quickly. Um, I'm not sure we realized how quickly it was happening. Um, but I mean, the technology advanced very, very fast last year. And I think it's a, it's a major problem. Like I, I don't, I think the problem is like on the surface, there's all these fascinating use cases and people are like, oh, cool. I'm going to go deep fake myself and I'm going to create a video too, like Ethan did and, and show myself doing these things and prove it works. And, um, it, it, to me, it's such a slippery unknown slope of what are we creating? Like if you're developing these videos of yourself, giving that training data to HeyGen, who's HeyGen? Who's the CEO of HeyGen? Are they an EAC? Like what? You know, people are like blindly trusting AI startups with their likeness and like giving them training data to go build these things that can be wildly misused. Um, and so, you know, I think that it, it's going to be a problem on, on so many levels, like the LinkedIn post, you know, that I had put up about this was, um, and I said the deep fakes and synthetic media are going to be a major problem moving forward. And I called out, especially in the upcoming U.S. election cycle. Um, so while there's these fascinating business use cases, when you opt in and choose to create your own content, it's going to be just as easy for other people to create deep fakes of you and other people. Um, so as you started out, like you can't trust anything. Like I even found myself in the last 48 hours watching videos on like x and be like is this real like mm -hmm. i don't know is this actually this person like I, I don't even know if i can trust this anymore um so you can't trust anything you see online unless it's coming from a verified source so you know i hate to even give this example but like us like i, I mean how hard would it be to deep fake me talking in, in my basement I'm, I'm guessing not very hard i, I right. haven't tried but I'm, I'm guessing it's not that difficult and so if it's coming from a person you recognize, 
what you really have to do is the next step is, but is it coming from a verified channel of theirs? Is it on their YouTube channel? Did they post it from their social media accounts? Like we have to very quickly as a society train people, including our kids. Like I have to have this conversation with my 12 year old, my 10 year old already about what to trust. Um, and like, which channel is it coming from? Where did you see it? Like all these things. And so going into the elections for 2024 in the U.S., like I'm, we're not the only ones dealing with this globally. And I know we have listeners outside of the U.S., but we have to deal with this like right now, because if he can do that with a minute of training data and we have to assume bad actors can do similar things with other people's likenesses, we need to figure out ways to accelerate education, but we also have to accelerate the authentication of media. I don't know how you do that. Um, so the other call to action I had in my LinkedIn post was like PR professionals. If we have any public relations professionals listening, you have to get defensive deep fake strategies in your 2024 crisis communications plan, because there's nothing stopping them from doing this with an executive in your company, a board member, whatever it is, and, and, and causing chaos. So uh, the, the final note I'll make here is someone had commented on the LinkedIn post about like, you know, they don't see how this affects elections. And so mm -hmm. I, unfortunately, like I was sitting there last night trying to watch the Miami Buffalo game because um, I was like really interested in that. I was like, I got to respond to this. So I like shut <laughs> off the game and I was like, I got to think this through. So what I had replied, and I think you can kind of like carry this then over into the business world. I said, I'm, I'm not a political strategist, obviously, but here's my thinking. Um, they asked specifically about like, how could this really sway an election? There aren't that many undecideds. And it's like, well, actually there are, it's like Gen Z, like 18 to 34, 49% of them are undecided who they would vote for. They're basically independents. Like that's a, that's a pretty big swing. Um, in any election, moving an election three, four points changes the outcome of the entire election. And that's where all the money goes is trying to change the minds of those 4% basically. So. I said, undecideds have a significant impact on outcome elections. Billions will be spent trying to influence them. By definition, they are harder to lump into any specific interest group or target with common messages around hot button issues. So you need to get highly targeted and personalized. So rather than spending millions running five to 10 ads through traditional media, maybe you create five to 10,000 ads, videos, and memes. Now, if you're a bad actor, say a foreign government that wants to influence an election, or our own politicians who are willing to cross a moral and ethical line to persuade voters, not that either of those things ever happen, you have the power to generate synthetic content at scale and hyper-target your audience through online channels. You can even have the content appear as though it comes from people they trust, celebrities, influencers, etc., i.e. deepfakes. So my overall thoughts are synthetic content deepfakes will absolutely be used by bad actors in the election cycle. AI will give politicians superpowers at targeting and influencing voters. And the third is if undecided voters can't swing an election, then why do politicians target them at all? AI excels the influence and persuasion to target these people. So again, not being a political strategist, I would love to be wrong here, but this all seems inevitable at this point. And so the election is an easy one to play out. But again, you can play out the impact on your own company or your own career, or your own online persona. Like if you, if you have an online persona, this is reality. Like we're heading in this world. And the other, th the final thing I'll have is I keep seeing like these AI influencers, like people are making deep fakes of them, like doing whole podcast interviews where someone creates a fake J Cal or whatever. I think I've yeah. seen it. Yeah. And they like play it off. Like it's funny. I'm like, they're stealing your persona. Like, how is this funny? How is this an example of 
technology done right? Why are you amplifying people stealing your persona? Like, I'm sending a cease and desist letter. Like, I, I really don't understand that mindset at all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like you said, this is, like it's a heavy topics, but like we got to talk about this stuff. Yeah. It's real. Yeah. Yeah. And with just how quickly it's accelerated, we have to talk about it now. We can't wait until, you know, everyone's taking a breath to start the new year. I mean, it, this is coming at us fast. So, all right, let's dive into some rapid fire topics in some slightly more positive news. Uh, Perplexity, an AI powered search engine that we talk about and use uh, at the Institute has just raised almost $74 million, and that values the company at $520 million. Participants in the investment round included notable VC firms and NVIDIA and Jeff Bezos. Now, in the world of AI, a $520 million valuation, shockingly, can seem kind of low in comparison to some of these billion-dollar unicorns that are in generative AI, but it's worth remembering the company has only been around since August 2022. So a little over maybe a year and a half in existence. Perplexity CEO, interestingly, also used to work at OpenAI. So what's the big deal with Perplexity? Why do we talk about it a bunch? Um, unlike Google, Perplexity functions more like a chatbot. You ask it natural language questions like, say, what are some of the top use cases for AI and marketing? And it responds with a comprehensive answer complete with citations from websites and articles for every single piece of information that it provides. You can also ask follow-up questions in a single thread to drill down further into topics. Now, Paul, first I wanted to get your thoughts generally on perplexity, the fundraise, and then I can also share a few points about the tool as I've quickly found it to be kind of a powerful piece of my own AI workflow as well. Yeah, it was interesting. They they announced this funding last week because you and I were just having this conversation because I know you are a user of Perplexity Pro, which is $20 a month. Yeah. Um, I am not, but you hear about this company so much. I mean, it is one of the hotter names, certainly, even before the funding from mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos and others, not Beth Jezos, but actually Jeff <laughs> Bezos funded. Although I think Guillaume may have actually been in the funding round too, ironically enough. Um, so... The the people we follow in this space talk about perplexity, like the other AI leaders talk about perplexity as an example of a, an interesting startup. So it's been on my radar, but honestly, every time I look at it, I'm like, I don't get it. Like, how how is this replacing search for me? It, it's probably not. I already pay 20 a month for chat GPT and it, it's just piping GPT 3.5 in the free version and GPT 4 in the paid version. Like, why don't I just use chat GPT? And so I go in and I'll like pry a couple searches in it. And I'm like, I, I don't know, like, okay. Like I, it seems interesting. I guess it's a little di- different user interface, but I knew it was using Claude and, and GPT-4 and I already had those. So I just, I just didn't get it. So this morning at the gym, I listened to an interview on the Cognitive Re- Re- Revolution podcast, which is a great podcast, by the way, with the, the founder and CEO of Perplexity. And I was like, well, I'll give him a chance. Like I'll see, maybe he can explain it to me. And unfortunately, he actually struggles himself to kind of explain the things I was wondering, like, why would I use this instead of ChatGPT? Um, that being said, it was an interesting uh, interview for sure. And it doesn't change my perception that the people I follow believe in this company. So there, there's something here. So I don't take this as I don't think the company is worth pursuing or following or trying yourself. I just still haven't found it, the use case myself. So I'm anxious to hear yours. 
but they're talking about how they are completely relying on Google and Microsoft for their data. Um, and so they want to build their own search index so they don't have to rely on Google APIs to do it. And they're completely relying on OpenAI and Anthropic for their language models and how they want to build their own language models because otherwise their servers could get shut down. So they're very dependent upon other people. This is what we talked about earlier. Like they need their own data to make this work. Um, he talked a little bit about how the, he thinks you can kind of train these models on like a, one to 10 billion pages of the internet instead of a trillion. But when they asked him like, well, how do you use Copilot? Cause there's this toggle for like turn Copilot on and off. And I was like, what, what is that? Like, why would I turn it off? And so the interviewer actually said like, well, how do you, when do you use Copilot? And, and the CEO is kind of struggling. He's like, honestly, like if we knew we would have just made it like uh, a required part of the feature, but like right now it's just a choice. So my overall take here is it seems like most users at this point are AI enthusiasts who are experimenting with it, like trying to find the use case. It's shown some promise. So people like you and me are just like, all right, I'll pay the 20 bucks a month or three months and try the thing out. They have not hit escape velocity with like the average consumer that's going to like switch from Google and start using this tool. And they don't seem to even have any clue how they'll get to that point, but they're having crazy growth. It's most likely coming from people who are curious and AI enthusiasts and tech, the tech crowd though. Like they're, they're nowhere near breaking into the general lexicon of users. So that again, having only tried like five searches in it and played around a little bit and not seen the like, oh, I totally get why this is different. Um, that's my kind of high level at the moment, but what has been your experience as someone who actually pays for it and uses it? Yeah, I largely agree with you. I think the company itself doesn't necessarily know what it wants or needs to be. However, I'm going to break down kind of how I come at it from a few different quick ways. First, I'm going to kind of talk through perplexity versus traditional Google search. Like, why do I find it to be increasingly the go-to? And then second, can talk a little more about perplexity versus ChatGPT Plus, for instance. So first up, like it is pretty clear to me even the free version, I pay for the co-pilot version because like you, I had no idea what the difference was until I like, and we'll talk about that in a second, but I was like, oh, okay, like you can use a better version of this more often. I'm using it quite a bit. Let's do it. Let's test it out. The free version of Perplexity, I would say alone, which I used for months is in my opinion, just so much smarter than a traditional Google search. Uh, even when you have Google's AI augmented search generative experience turned on. Um, I'll be honest, Google search feels a bit medieval to me compared to perplexity because perplexity is extremely fast. It provides comprehensive answers and pretty good sources as I've seen, you know, without clicking in every single one pretty quickly. And once you start using something like this, you do start to realize just how cluttered and the cumbersome Google's kind of UX and ads and random search results you have to pick there, how hard that is to navigate. Because um, at the moment, they don't have an ad model. They are not purely right revenue driven. I mean, they're losing money as, as, well, as you would sure. assume, but the 20 bucks a month is their, their revenue model. Correct. Yeah. There are no ads as of right now that could change very quickly, but today it's a pretty streamlined experience. Um, I also find the summaries of search results, you know, it's looking at several or dozens of different search results for different searches as well and summarizing those into a few comprehensive paragraphs to help you answer 
whatever queries you're trying to find. I find those summaries to be way better than the ones provided even by Google's AI. Um, again, it's not, I'm not like doing a in-depth experiment with thousands of searches, just kind of my personal um, opinion. And I love this idea that it is looking at a lot of different sources. So the pro version uses GPT-4 to kind of understand your conversational queries. Um, and it actually will go perform a bunch of different web searches for you and then synthesize that. It will even ask you follow-up questions, which I find to be pretty helpful before it completes the search. So in one example, it may if you say, hey, I don't know if this will actually work, but as an example, if you said, hey, I'm looking for a bunch of low-carb recipes online, and I want them to ideally have a heavy component of using lots of vegetables. It may then say, hey, which vegetables are you actually interested in? Give you a bunch of options. You can choose to answer that question or not. And then it goes and does all this research for you. Another piece of this I like is you have these threads of conversations. So you can ask all these really smart follow-up questions, do additional related searches, and kind of build on the knowledge that Perplexity is giving you. Again, a lot of this is just UX stuff, but I find it so powerful given how core search and research is to what I do every day that it's well worth paying for. But again, most of these benefits you can actually just get from the free version. So that's what's so great. I would highly recommend checking that out. Uh, the CEO of Replit, Amjad Massad, actually called having a pro account a 10-point IQ boost. And I have to say I agree with him just with how fast you can get to knowledge. That's I really hope they cool. put that on their homepage. It's like a great endorsement. Should. It should be the number one headline. Yeah. It needs some better marketing for sure. So then this second question, like why perplexity instead of chat GPT plus? This is a little murkier because I actually find them both good at different things and complementary. I would not recommend in any stretch of imagination one over the other, like only using one if you can afford it. Obviously, ChatGPT Plus is the go-to. Perplexity is an additional helpful add-on. Um, Perplexity is not designed to do the things that ChatGPT does. However, when it comes to strictly research, um, ChatGPT Plus can certainly find links on the internet, summarize them for you. Um, I personally still just find it a little hit or miss for replacing search behavior specifically. Um, if you want to say, hey, summarize a topic for me or explain something like I'm five, nothing is better than ChatGPT+. But if you're actually looking to collect a bunch of online resources, work through those, kind of deeply research certain topics, I just found perplexity faster, more accurate, and kind of more intuitive. So I'd almost, I, I just view perplexity as almost strictly like search slash research. Um, other than that, I'm using ChatGPT for everything else, like summarization, ideation. You're not really looking to use perplexity for that, but I do love how much quicker perplexity is in terms of an overall search experience. So that's kind of so far why I kind of talk it up. Um, yeah, it totally depends how much like I, research is such a core part of my job that it's like a no brainer to spend 20 bucks a month on it. But if you're not doing a ton of it, you're, definitely not replacing ChatGPT or using this instead of it. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, for me personally, like I'll, I'll keep experimenting with it. I, I, I moved the icon, you know, up in my, uh, on my iPhone. So I see it more often and, um, you know, think to, to test it out. But again, I, I would put me in the bucket of the AI enthusiast that's just 
curious about technology. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll keep playing with it for sure. I, I I'm really interested to see where it goes, but like I said, it's a company backed by some, some pretty significant people who think there's yeah. something there. So that usually means it's worth paying attention to. For sure. All right. Our next topic is that we all know Microsoft is all in on AI, but it now wants its devices to reflect that. The company actually announced a new co-pilot key, which is a key on a keyboard that will ship on certain new PCs and laptops that are coming from Microsoft's partners. This key will give you fast access to Windows Copilot, which is Microsoft's AI-powered assistant, and you just press it to launch the application in a single keystroke. It sounds like this key will replace the existing menu key on Windows keyboards, and if you don't have Copilot, the key will instead open Windows Search. Now, this may be a small little thing, but it is actually a pretty big change. It's the first major alteration of the Windows standard keyboard in almost 30 years. So it will have a pretty big effect, even though it's just one tiny key. Now, Paul, it sounds like Microsoft is telling us that ready access to an AI assistant, it's going to be kind of the go-to function on your computer when you're working moving forward. Was that kind of your take on this announcement? Yeah, I think it's just further proof that this isn't stopping. This isn't some you know, trend or bubble that we're going to move on from AI in 2024 to the next hot thing. It's literally just going to be infused into everything we do and how quickly that infusion process happens in your company and in your industry is up for debate. That may be, take a few years, but AI as a whole um, is just going to become an integral part of everything we do as, as professionals. So it should, I should note for this next topic, we're recording this on Monday, January 8th. Um, we're right around noon at the moment, and OpenAI has announced that the GPT store will be launching sometime this week. So as a reminder, the GPT store is this thing that's going to offer GPTs, which are built by other users, for you to go download. GPTs are the custom versions of ChatGPT that you can create yourself. These were announced at the Developer Day in late 2023 that we covered on a previous podcast. So OpenAI basically said, hey, if you're interested in sharing your own GPTs, once the store launches, you have to follow their usage policies and brand guidelines, which they provided. You have to verify what's called your builder profile, which is just a quick thing with your name and a website and your basic info. And then you have to make sure your GPT is set to be shared with the public. Now, previously, OpenAI had indicated there's some type of possibly revenue sharing component for popular GPTs. But right now, it's totally unclear what that is. Um, now, Paul, obviously, we'll be covering this, I would imagine, on next week's podcast or whenever the GPT store launches. But why should people be excited or paying attention to the launch of this store? Like, what does this mean to your average professional out there? Yeah, I mean, big picture, you know, are they building something like the app? store ecosystem from Apple? Like, is this the prelude to that? And these are the early days. So it's something to keep an eye on. Um, but I think the, you know, there's like a guy we all both follow, uh, official Logan K on mm. Twitter is, 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 um, handle, but it's Logan Kilpatrick who does developer relations for OpenAI. Great on Twitter. He shares all kinds of inside information and a uh, really good follow. But he kind of outlined it real quickly as GPT solve a lot of problems. The one he's most excited about is the first time user experience. A lot of times people just don't know what to do. And so by creating these GPTs, you create a, a gateway or an entry point for people. Uh, he said, this is really just the start. 
Um, today, it might not be super hard to go build your own version of something, but that will change over time as there's more built around GPTs. Or um, the third was, he said, you're, you being able to rebuild a GPT is not necessarily representative of the average user. This is like responding to someone else. Um, that we're not solving for the expert builder is basically what they're saying. We're trying to solve, to widen the the net of how many people can use this technology and and get a great value from it. And that it's a long-term thing, that this is going to keep evolving pretty quickly as they keep building. So, you know, I don't think it's going to be like earth shattering, like GPT-4 came out kind of level, like, mm -hmm. hey, everything changes as soon as the GP GPT store hits. But I think it's going to be a slow build and it's obviously going to be a key part of OpenAI's go-to-market strategy moving forward. So in our final topic today, uh, our friend Chris Penn over at TrustInsights.ai, who is an AI expert and a good friend of us here at the Institute, he posted about a worrying issue with Anthropic's popular AI assistant, Claude. Now, like us, Chris uses Claude for, among other things, it's really powerful summarization capabilities. But he recently ran into a huge problem. He went to load his weekly transcript for his newsletter into the latest version, Claude 2.1, in order to create a YouTube summary. It's something he's done countless times. Now, this transcript talked exclusively about OpenAI's custom GPTs and the GPT store like we just did, and it did not mention Claude or Anthropic at all. But then Chris says on LinkedIn, quote, Claude intentionally rewrote itself into my summary and wrote out OpenAI. Again, nowhere in my source transcript is Anthropic or Claude mentioned. It should not have done this. So instead of just summarizing the existing content according to Chris's prompt, Claude added something new, something about itself, and removed a reference to an opposing AI assistant. Now, Chris, who knows more about this stuff than most people on the planet, was really shocked by this. He said, quote, this to me immediately makes Claude less trustworthy. I didn't ask for net new copy, just summarization. So it should just be processing the tokens that are present in the source material. Highly problematic. Now, Paul, what do you see as going on here? Do we need to be worried about the outputs from Claude now? I would love to hear a response from Anthropic because I, I have no idea how that happens unless someone programmed it to do that. Like that, that's not a language mm -hmm. model hallucinating. That is somebody thought it was funny or there would be some competitive advantage to like replacing OpenAI when it's mentioned with Anthropic. Like I'm with Chris on this. There's a, a problem. Like it makes me question what's going on in Anthropic. And I think someone's got to take ownership of this and say, yeah, we screwed up mm -hmm. <laughs> and it shouldn't have done that. Uh, because you do lose trust very quickly with something like that, that somebody, again, may have thought was funny or cute, that makes you not necessarily trust the output of the model. Now, Anthropic is not the company I would have expected that from. Yeah. If you told me Grok did this, I'd be like, it's par <laughs> for the course. But yeah, Anthropic, I, I'm a bit surprised um, that, that something like that would occur. I don't know yeah, how it occurs accidentally, so... We'll uh, link to Chris's post, but he shows the prompt he used as well. Chris is one of the best people out there when it comes to prompting these things. So it is not a one-line prompt. It's paragraphs yeah. of context and content, and he's been using these tools for longer than most people. So I'm pretty sure he's not doing anything wrong in the prompt to even somehow cause this. Yeah. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for being with us. I want to just quickly note here that, like Paul mentioned at the top of the episode, we have a weekly newsletter that goes out with everything happening 
This Week in AI. We cover both what we've talked about today on the podcast, as well as tons of topics that we don't have time to get to in a single episode. So if you would like to stay up to date on all the stuff happening in AI every single week, you can go to marketingaiinstitute.com forward slash newsletter. Thanks, Paul, for all your help in decoding what is happening in AI. We're off to a hot start in 2024 here. Yeah, for sure. That was, again, a lot. appreciate everyone staying with us. We had a, a huge year of growth in 2023. The, the podcast went from 5,000 downloads in 2022 to 260,000 in 2023. So we appreciate every one of you that listens in. Uh, if this is your first time, welcome to the show. Um, Definitely, you know, subscribe and, you know, please pass along and share if you find value in it. Uh, we'd love to keep growing this audience in this community. And again, we're just grateful to the, you take the time to listen each week. So we'll talk to you again next week. We'll be back a little bit. It'll be the 16th. So um, thanks again for being with us. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Marketing AI Show. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you're ready to continue your learning, head over to marketingaiinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, check out our free monthly webinars, and explore dozens of online courses and professional certifications. Until next time, stay curious and explore AI.